are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. Anything possible? From the home of the St. Paul Saints, American Association champions, it's the 252 Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Gerritz. I'm Chris Moore. And I'm Sam Mulberry. So we're going to talk to someone who works for the St. Paul Saints, which is an independent minor league team in St. Paul, Minnesota. In our second segment, she has a very, very unique job. I'm so excited for this. So I don't think we'll say anything more about that. You'll just meet Ann Lease in our second segment. But uh, it's been a while since we talked to you guys. And I think the last thing that we talked about was we suggested three things that you all should be listening to or watching. So, Sam, were they worth the watch? All right. So uh, Chris Garrett said that we should watch the Winter X Games. Uh, so the U.S. topped the leaderboard. Without a lot of conviction in my heart. Right. right. The U.S. topped the leaderboard with 10 gold medals. Canada came in second with five. USA. USA. Only USA. one other country earned more than one gold medal. Can you guess what that country is? It was Belize. No, it was Norway. I'm going to give you each one more guess. It was Japan. It was Germany. It was Estonia. Whoa. Whoa, okay. See, clearly you guys are not familiar with 17-year-old Kelly Sildrew, queen of freestyle skiing. So she, uh, this is not her first uh, rodeo at the X Games, but she, so that was the only other team to win more than one gold medal was Estonia. We need to talk more about rodeo. Wait, X Games. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. My mind just went really right. All right. So I'm going to call that worth the watch because anything where sure. you have countries competing against each other, you kind of almost yeah. automatically yeah. get yeah. that. I'll take now, it. we also had a sort of a 1v1 matchup between Chris Moore and I. So I said you should watch the Pro Bowl, the NFL Pro Bowl, uh, for the sake of Jay Barnes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said that you shouldn't. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the AFC beat the NFC 38-33. The score is, was close, so it sounds yeah. like it's worth the watch, but in truth, the Pro Bowl is never worth the watch. So, Chris, you win this. Because <laughs> you. you said we should watch the NHL All-Star Game. Yes. And here's why you win, because I didn't know how the NHL does their All-Star Game. It's awesome. Yeah. It's, brilliant. it's so great. Cool. Yeah. So instead of having a normal All-Star Game, they play three 20-minute periods of hockey but they break the all-star teams up by do they call them divisions i think yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. by divisions and they play basically a four team mini tournament mm-hmm. how cool is that was cool. it 3 on 3 this year yeah and it's 3 yeah. on 3 so it's yeah. wide open hockey so the scores now this is in 20 minutes uh in game 1 the atlantic division beat the metropolitan division 9 to 5 in game 2 the pacific beat the central 10 to 5 so that's should have had more wild play in 20 yeah. minutes they I mean they were scoring 15, 15 goals, goals. Wow. Uh, and then in the championship, the Pacific beat the Atlantic four to five. What a great because because all star games have a problem, yeah. and 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 they've you know made attempts to try to fix them. This is awesome. I love this. Okay, yeah. but I think we three are probably agreed. There's maybe even a better way to do an all star game. At least a really interesting way. Okay, maybe um, we're not agreed. But what's the other all star game that's happened since we last recorded? The NBA All Star Game. Yeah, so that was I'm this that was so this weekend, and this. they uh, played a lot with the format this they year. They sure did. So, what are the teams first? How are those chosen? So, the teams are chosen by the two leading vote getters. Each basically then draft from the people who qualified for the game. Right. So LeBron so, James and yeah, Giannis. Giannis. Last yeah. name. Just kidding. Antetokounmpo. Glad you said it. Yep. <laughs> okay. All right. So. Um, 
so so they basically have a draft like in the schoolyard, right? Going back and forth, mm-hmm. uh, picking their team. So you get to have a little bit of multiple said Braun did a better job drafting. Is the definitely player team like five foot three and has no like the last player picked? No. These are all amazing <laughs> players. I'm sorry. They're, but the great thing is there's even among the all stars, there's still a last guy pick. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is kind of great. Who was the last guy pick? Do we know? I don't remember. I looked at it. He was an all star, so yeah, that's true. it's Fine. good for him. Um, but then they changed the, actually the format of the game itself. So each of the first three periods was an individual game. Um, so they, they started the, the score back at zero. And then each, uh, whoever won the period, won the quarter, $100,000 went to the Chicago-based charity of their choice because the All-Star game was in Chicago. Right. Um, I looked it up. If a quarter were to tie... It's like a skins game, which just rolls over to the next one. Oh. So then the next the next quarter is uh, is higher stakes. But the real innovation came in the fourth quarter, uh, because in the fourth quarter, what they did is they took whatever team had the highest score, and then basically that team needed to score twenty four points to win, or the other team needed to get to whatever that score was plus twenty four. There's and a target you have to reach exactly. Right. And they they went with twenty four uh, in honor of Kobe Bryant. Because that was um, that was one of his one of the numbers that Kobe wore yep. uh, most famously. Um, and there's a name for this rule this this score this scoring system. There is, and I forget what it's, it's the called. Elon rule. Either rule. Okay. What it's called? It's the Elon rule. Elon. Okay. Um, which is based off of a I think just like a blogger who came up with this idea of hey, what if we the fourth the fourth quarter we turned off the clock and we just said whatever the leading team is leading by that plus a set number is the end of the game. Okay. So what are the advantages well, of... Well, what was the result? Like, how did this work out? Did this... Okay, so the so as the fourth quarter started, both teams knew it was the first team to 157 points to win. And uh, the clock is off. Mm-hmm. So what this functionally does is it kind of eliminates that sort of fouling to save time, timeouts, that kind of stoppage at the end of basketball games, which a lot of people find kind of tedious. And there was this sort of just a smooth rush to try to sweep you to 157 points first. And the All-Star game, for three quarters, like most All-Star games, not a lot of defense, a lot of guys driving down empty lanes to dunk the ball. The game got real tight and intense yeah, in the fourth quarter. Yeah. And with, with players actually like looking to the refs, kind of doing that complaining thing, trying to leverage for... Not James game. Harden, though. Right? Oh, no, never James Harden. He never talks to the refs. And then um, at the very end, it was settled by a free throw. So the game was 157-156. Uh, with a free throw being sunk at the end of the game to, to ice it. I mean, this was this was tight and high energy and super fun. Yeah, no, I, I didn't watch it, but I was watching it on Twitter. And, I mean, I follow a fair number of people who cover basketball or are pretty serious basketball fans. And this is probably hyperbole, but one of them said it was like watching an Olympic gold medal game or an NBA finals game, except with much better talent. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like the purest distillation of basketball talent in the world was playing this one quarter and one team was racing to catch up and surpass the other team. Yep. And they said it was fantastic. Yeah. So, so so this led us to think about like what if what if the NBA should the NBA just do this yeah. for for all games, right? Mm-hmm. Is because because one of the issues with an NBA game if you sit down and watch one is the first three quarters go pretty smoothly, pretty quickly and the fourth quarter grinds through as you know as teams are trying to sort of make their way back in. So I mean, one of the criticisms of the NBA at times is you just need to tune in for the the last five minutes of the game, which right. will take quite a while to, to to play out. Right. This would this would eliminate that, mm-hmm. but still keeping all the stakes of the rest of the well, game. It elevates the skills that we actually appreciate. Which I mean, free throw shooting is a skill, and it actually won the game in this case. But right. especially in college basketball, this is what drives me crazy. Mm-hmm. Is is you can wind up with results where a clearly a lesser talented team 
simply does not make his free throws and loses the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to think, and Sam, I know you have some statistics mm-hmm. to help us give some context for it. It seems like this is pretty unusual in sports, right? Basically, sports are either there's they're timed periods, right? And then simply once the time is gone, whoever's the most points wins. Or a version of this would be baseball or right. softball or it's cricket. A series of turns. Right. There's a fair ups. But it's not time in the same sense. But in the end, you come to a certain conclusion and the number of points wins. So I was trying to think of sports that actually do this. Um, they're like billiards games, right? I mean, you simply play until a certain number of balls are pocketed, mm-hmm. right? The other one I thought that's a little bit more like what the NBA was doing is at least in some some sports where you race, you do like multiple rounds of it and you get a head start kind of based on how far ahead you were. So like I think this shows up in like the Winter Olympics, maybe in biathlon, cross country skiing. Mm-hmm. And so like you the can amazing still race catch up the amazing race, right? <laughs> and, but like there's a kind of it's not a target in the same the way. The Tour de France does this. Yeah. So I mean like that's the closest I could come up with. Except that then I realized that as kids, we do this all the time because we play 21 mm-hmm. in basketball. Mm-hmm. You play to a score, right? And, and why, why wouldn't you do that at the professional level? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Sam, you did some actual Well, I, I was curious about this because Chris Moore asked me about this yesterday. And I was thinking, okay, what would the drawbacks be to if the NBA said, okay, next year this is how we're doing the fourth quarter? Is it does put a cap on what the amount – that can be scored in a game to a certain degree. I mean, right. obviously you can score as much as you want in the first three quarters, but then once that third quarter ends, you know this game is going to end with the team at this many points. At, at this many points. So that would affect uh, it. Would affect things like uh, some records, like mm-hmm. you know, sco- either single game scoring records. I mean, imagine if a guy had you know, if, if let's say we set it at twenty five points and a guy had. 74 points going into right. the fourth quarter, you can't break the record. It's actually impossible. The rules mean right. you can't do that, where Wilt didn't have that that issue. Um, and also, you know, even things like, you know, the scoring average records and things like that, like it would, you'd put a cap on it. But it also led me to think about, they picked 24 mm-hmm. because, uh, in to honor Kobe Bryant, which seems perfectly fine for an all-star it's game. It's a reasonable number of points. Well, that's well, okay. That's what I was wondering about. Like, like if we were to do this, what would you set the number at? What should the score in an NBA game be? Well, so because that also seems roughly like if you divide a typical score by four quarters, you know, it's probably more like twenty-five or twenty-six these days. Another, mm-hmm. But like that that seems fair. It resonates with the shot clock. Like there, there mm-hmm. seems like some symmetry to that number. Right. But. Yeah. I'm just interested. So I did some some looking to sort of see how this how, what the average score of an NBA game over time. Are the average points per game that that all NBA teams have scored over time, and it's actually there's actually a pretty wide margin. So, mm-hmm. uh, does anybody want to guess what the highest scoring decade in the history of the NBA is, starting with the 1950s? I would guess it's the 70s, so the 80s. It is the 1960s. Oh, really? Uh, the average the average NBA score in the 1950s, the average NBA team scored 115 points a game in the 1960s. Okay. So in the 50s, it was 91. Then it went up to 115. The 70s was uh, basically 108. Okay. The 80s was 109. The 90s was right around 100. Yeah, the 2000s was 97. Yeah. So it went mm-hmm. way down. And now we're up to 103, although we're trending up. I think last year was like 111. Mm-hmm. So like yeah. we're we're getting back up to where – to the way. so it made me think about like I think about an NBA game being – around 100 points, and the average over the course of the history of the NBA is around 103, the median's 105, but uh, but that's actually changed over time in yeah. terms of what that uh, what that looks like. Well, it strikes me, it'd be an easy way then for leagues to manipulate 
um, the nature of the game in response to, like, fan demand. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the NBA got, you know, Pat Riley era, certain kind of defense, isolation plays, and so not surprisingly. It's also when fan interest, at least in my reaction, drops off. And But then Absolutely. you have, like, this injection of young superstars plus the emergence of the three-point shot, analytics changing strategies. I think the way the game was marketed has changed. But let's say the NBA all started and started tailing off. Would inclination always be towards more scoring? Would you just try to set a higher score and see what that does to the? To the yeah, I mean, I don't know. I but, but yeah, yeah. I mean, that would that would make you could at least juice what the final score is. That may not make the game better to watch, though. Right. You know? Yeah. I want to throw one more thing in here. So I, I, I'm okay with just. I, I think there's a case you can just keep it at 24 as a permanent way to honor Kobe Bryant. Um, we, we, in some ways, we do sort of honoring honorifics of other kinds of players and the the logo, those sorts of things. But I think it could also be a function of the scoring of the first three quarters. It wouldn't be hard to work out an algorithm that says there's a certain percentage of the points scored in the first three quarters becomes the amount you have yeah. to hit. So there'd be some reveal fourth. before the fourth quarter starts. It'd be, it'd be known, but it would also fluctuate. Man, does that not turn the NBA, an NBA uh, game into more of a math problem than it needs to be, though? Quite possibly. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Um, so, I mean, the reason I found this in interesting for a lot of reasons one though is that as chris and i think back over the first couple weeks of this class we're actually teaching one of the themes that i think we knew would be part of it but probably is bubbled up more than i even expected was rules changes mm-hmm. so like on monday i did something on the history of mostly college football and, and the major theme of the chapter in our textbook was the evolution of rules in college football in response to like the violence of the game the attractiveness of the game um, but that's shown up in other ways, too. And I think it's part of a larger process of, I don't know if this is all institutionalization, Chris, but that was the word <laughs> you gave us last last mm-hmm. week. What, what is institutionalization? Well, institutionalization is simply the process by which things we kind of agree on become systematized into rules and laws and orders, and even organizations mm-hmm. uh, that reinforce those kinds of things we agree upon. Yeah, and so a theme of the class that that's connected to is the emergence of organize, what we call organized sports from folk sports, right. our author Richard Davies calls it. You know, from the kind of games you play as kids, you play as a community, you improvise, you make up rules as you mm-hmm. go, the number of players, the boundaries, they fluctuate, to the sense that this needs to be standardized, regulated, organized, institutionalized, and not surprising that this is when it gets attached to to the market, you mm-hmm. know, to owners and to workers and uh, to media. And we start caring about things like records over time and whether it be fair to Will Chamberlain's record to change how we do things or to Babe Ruth's record to add eight more games, whatever it is. So one thing, though, that, that suggests that there can then be a kind of conservatism, right, mm-hmm. is we don't want to change this for the sake of historical continuity or institutions are averse to risk. You don't want to mess with the product on the field or the court or the rink. And so, like, I think a challenge you have is – how do you experiment with rules, right? And so an all-star game is one way you could do it. It's perfect. Major League Baseball currently is using at least one independent minor league, the Atlantic League, to experiment with, like, computer-assisted uh, umpiring. Um, I think that's where they've started to do the thing in, like, the 11th inning. You put a runner at second base to try to reduce long inning games. Um, but we have another example of this going on in football, which in many ways is a very conservative sport. But there is, yet again, a new attempt at an alternative or a success, a spring version of the NFL. The XFL has played two weeks. And I think we are all interested in the rules changes the XFL is trying mm-hmm. out. And I suspect the NFL is watching them very closely. I think so, yeah. Absolutely. So should we summarize at least? Well, I don't how about this? About Why don't I run down rules and you guys just tell me okay. pro or con with these? Yep. So the, the first one is they've changed the way that they do uh, both punts and kickoffs to, I think, in both for safety reasons, but also to encourage 
um, more like longer returns, things like this. Mm-hmm. Can you describe the kickoff? So the kickoff rule is you still have the kicker. I think they moved them back to maybe the third. They don't want touchbacks right. in either case. What's odd is the defense lines up, is it five yards or ten yards apart from the return team blocker, yeah. but no one can move until the return man catches and makes a movement with the ball. And so what almost always happens is they wind up at the 25. Because it turns out it's really hard to actually break free when you've got everyone already down there really close together. But what you avoid are the kind of dramatic collisions that happen when the return feed is running full speed down into someone else at the other end of the field. But you also create uh, an opportunity to, um, uh, to potentially, like, scheme kickoffs differently because really all you need to do is find a way to blast a hole open and have the returner know where that hole is going to be right. potentially. So yeah. it's it's safer but potentially more exciting than just boom the ball through the end zone and, and yeah. shoot and what And what they've – we'll lump these two together. What they've changed with punts is that the, the punting team, they can't cross the line of scrimmage until the ball is kicked. So you right. can't no like – No one, like the gunners can't. Right, right. right. Yep. But also there's a substantial disincentive. Um, I think it's like if you kick the ball into the end zone, the touchback goes all the way to like the 35, mm-hmm. not the 20 right, instead. Right. Um, I don't think you can even kick it out of bounds, right? It's like yeah, You can't do the coffin yeah. corner punt anymore. Right. So, so what, how do we feel about these rules? I love it. I love it. I'm pro. Uh, yeah. I, it looks strange, right? And it takes a while, especially the kickoff looks absolutely odd. But the result, I think, is perfectly fine, and I think it accomplishes a lot of what the NFL has tried to do with safety, and I'm basically fine with anything that diminishes And it keeps the spirit of what a kickoff is designed to do. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so we're both we're on board with that one. Second one is the way they've changed point after touchdowns. No more kicking after a touchdown. You can go for one, you get one play at the two-yard line. You can go for two, you get one play at the five-yard line. Or you can go for three, you get one play at the ten-yard line. I think they've only had one successful three-point play so far. Like, I remember they were trying to model this before, and their estimate was, like, maybe 10% of the three-point plays would work, like 30 to 40% of the two-point plays, and, like, 50-50 or 60% of the one-point plays. So they almost always go for one so mm-hmm. far. But it does create this really interesting element of strategy, especially near the end of a game. Mm-hmm. Or if like, you're trying to come back. Yeah, if yeah. you're down by nine, you, it's not a two-score game anymore. Right, right. right. It's a one-touchdown game still. Yeah. Right. Um, Chris, what do you think? I'm less in on this. Uh, I, not that I have a particular affinity for kicking, and I think football has this weird specialist angle to it with kicking that is probably the most expendable part of the game. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not a particularly interesting part of the game. But at the same time, it feels like the two-yard, five-yard, ten-yard is a little bit arbitrary for a point differential. And I, I'd love to see a, like a, just a longer stream of data to figure out how successful these are and then see if they would adjust those yard line markers. That's what they're collecting. So, yeah. yes. I think that's fair. I, I mean, the reason I guess I'm fine with it is kind of a larger point, which is things that we view as uh, written in stone actually change over time. So, like, mm-hmm. something, Chris, I forgot to mention on Monday – in the history of football, do you know when a touchdown became six points? No, I don't. It is the 19 teens. I think it's like oh, 1912. Wow. Okay. And like the point after fluctuates over time. Hmm. Um, I mean, I like, and even in rugby, like there are two different ways of doing this, depending sure. on whether it's union or league. right? Mm-hmm. And so I, that's been long enough that it feels like, well, of course, you score a six-point touchdown, kick a one-point thing. But um, this has changed before. Maybe we should mm-hmm. be open to it changing again. Yeah. All right. Here's a, here, the next one. Is, so we're... we're Mild on that, what we yeah. think about that. Yeah. Uh, the next one is one that the NFL constantly wrestles with, which is overtime. How do we do overtimes? Mm. So they didn't go with the college overtime. Instead, they basically do something like a hockey shootout. Each team gets the ball on the five-yard line. Uh, excuse me, five-yard line? Ten-yard line. 
I don't know if I've seen this yet. It's either the five or the ten. Now that I, I think it's, I think it's the ten yard line. Actually, okay. each team gets the ball at the ten yard line, and they get one play. And either you get a touchdown or you don't. And each team gets five shots at it. So, so it goes back and forth like mm-hmm. a shootout. But instead of like thinking about, okay, you can run as many plays, whatever. Like you get, you get one play back and forth. And then after each team gets five chances, just like a shootout. If they're tied, then they go to so one. Ba- then they go back and forth on that. So the idea, I assume the idea is like, do you go for it on the first play because you might not get another chance, or do you try to gain a chunk of yards and hope that it comes to the second round? No, no, the second. It's, 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 it's always, always starts. At, yeah, it, then maybe it's the five. Maybe it starts at the five, and you and it's just one play, one play. So either you score or you don't. I'm. I don't really like NHL shootouts for the same reason I don't like soccer shootouts because it feels like a game with you're selling the game with something that's different than the actual game. I like this better because you're still playing football, but I don't love it. It's fine. It's I actually fine. like how the NFL does over time. I don't want ties, first of all, but for the same, I want to diminish the element of it's just chance, right? There's this, like the coin flip matters a great deal. Mm-hmm. So that's not one where I feel like the NFL needs to change. Okay, so we have a little bit of a split decision on that. A double forward pass. So if you <laughs> throw a forward pass and the ball is caught behind the line of scrimmage, you can throw another forward pass provided the ball doesn't cross the line of scrimmage. So I've only seen this once. It was one of those plays where it's really functional. It's like a jet sweep, and it looks like a handoff, but actually the quarterback has thrown it like six inches. Like a shovel pass. And then they did a kind of like the receiver through down the field. I mean, if it's that, I don't really care. Like I, I this starts Imagine to a screen a pass ridiculous. that then becomes a yeah. yeah. I I don't know. Okay, but again, the forward pass itself, like that's happens at a certain sure. point. Uh, Twenty-five second play clock. I think this is great. Yeah. I think this is my favorite part. Is they've got the dedicated official, which might be another thing that spots the ball so that you can do this pretty quick. Now they still seem to do this thing where you get up to the line, you call it. And then you adjust. But the other piece, are you talking about the, the you can listen in on the coaches? No, but that's, yeah, yeah. that's so, not a rule change as much as But, like, as part it's... of the broadcast is you get to watch the coaches adjust to each other there on the line. So, like, once I think they got used to it, it's actually, it was a little rough last week. I was watching one of the games, and there were a lot of delay of game penalties. But I think this, it's an easy way to quicken the pace of games, because I think they're aiming for, like, two hours and 45 right. minutes. Right. So, so let me, th- let me throw, do you have a thought I, on I'm that? in on this. Okay. I like uh, this. Idea. Let me just lump these two together. So... Uh, in terms of sh- uh, shortening the game, only two timeouts per half per team, a running clock until the two-minute warning, mm-hmm. uh, and then what they call the comeback period, which is at once you get into two minutes, the clock stops on every play, and there's a five-second runoff from when it's spotted. So right. um, so to sort of encourage teams to be able to come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm in sure. on this. It speeds, it speeds up the game, keeps it uh, – Keeps it more intense. That's yeah, the big actually, knock on football. Right? I mean, the easiest one for me is the two timeouts. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, a because in the first half, most teams don't even use their three timeouts. But like, this is my least favorite thing about basketball is that in pro is it like it's seven timeouts? It seems like a hundred. I mean, yeah. it's it's it ceases to be the same sport at a certain point. Okay, last rule change: uh, they have the one foot inbounds to make a catch. Thoughts, feelings. This is college, right? This is this college. is college rule. Yes. Yeah, it's fine. I don't. I don't feel strongly about this. Okay. This seems to be a nod to the actual problem they face, which is their depth of talent is actually quite a bit poor. Sure. You know, they, they just don't have the kind of wide receivers who can create separation and have the kind of footwork. Like, I actually think that's one of the coolest things about the NFL mm-hmm. is the coordination, eye-hand coordination, body control. To be able to do that is remarkable. So we're mildly on board with the XFL based on yeah. this conversation. Yeah. I I mean, we talked in one of our first episodes last year about the um, XFL was coming, but there was this other thing called the Alliance for American Football that ended up failing for lack of funding. This seems like it has some staying power because it's got, obviously, Vince McMahon has billions of dollars of apparently liquid assets. 
Um, seems like this could stick around for a little while. Let me let me offer the counterpoint here. One way this could the way this could play out is the way it plays out in politics often, which is that you have powerful uh, institutional forces in the Republican Democratic Party. You have sometimes insurgent candidates who have uh, niche issues that they advocate for, and if those issues get traction with the public, then the main candidates, one of the main candidates, will simply adopt that issue. The the, the niche candidate goes away, and it becomes part of it. Part of the uh, the overall platform of so the party. Of, of all the rules changes Sam just described, what is the most likely to show up in the next year or two in the NFL? I think uh, the the running clock. Okay. Well, I think that's it for segment one. We've had a lot. We have to get to our second segment. Uh, stay tuned to hear from an employee of the St. Paul Saints right after this. This week in sports history, Sarajevo, Yugoslavia, February 19, 1984. Four years after losing the miracle on ice, the Soviet Union wins the Olympic gold medal in ice hockey for the sixth time, shutting out Czechoslovakia 2 to nothing. One of the new stars for the Soviets is Igor Larionov, who five years later will help open the door for Russian players to enter the NHL. New York, New York, February 20th, 1952. Major League Baseball certifies Emma Ashford as a professional umpire, the first African-American to receive the recognition. Fourteen years later, Ashford finally becomes the first black umpire in Major League history, calling the home opener for the Washington Senators. Sheldon, Iowa, February 21, 1979. In the district finals of the state's 6-on-6 girls high school basketball tournament, Melvin and Sibley go scoreless through regulation. After four overtimes, Melvin finally prevails 4-2 in the lowest scoring game in women's basketball history. Bloomington, Indiana, February 23, 1985. Frustrated after host Hoosiers are called for six fouls in the first five minutes of a game against Purdue, Indiana coach Bobby Knight throws his chair onto the court. Knight is ejected, and the Hoosiers end up losing to the Boilermakers 72-63. Fred Jaspers now chasing Bobby Knight back to his chair. And he's got got him right there. There's the tee. Two-shot technical against the bench and against Bob Knight. Steve Reed, an excellent free-throw shooter, will have the honor of shooting the technicals. Looky here, looky here. Bobby Knight just threw his chair. Clear across the free-throw lane. And I think uh, Fred Unbelievable. Jones. He picked up another tee. It's 11-6. We're just five minutes into the contest, and this has erupted. There's a good chance Bobby Knight's been ejected from this basketball game. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Welcome back to the 252. Segment two, of course, is our conversation segment. This week, we're pleased to have Anne Lease with us as our special guest. So Anne works uh, in the provost's office is the physical location of Bethel University. What do you do first uh, at Bethel, Anne? So I'm the administrative assistant to Amy Blas, the CFO, and Ruben Rivera, the um, chief diversity officer. Okay, but that's not actually why you're here. (laughs) Well, we are at Bethel, and we appreciate the work you do. You have another job. 
Which we found out sort of serendipitously. I, I, I'm excited to hear about this because I've heard it kind of second or third hand. But before we get to that, let's just leave people in suspense if they didn't hear the preview earlier. Let's just have you start by telling your sports story. This is our standard question to everyone we ask, whether they're an athlete, journalist, or the thing that you do. Um, do you have a sports story, Anne? Like, where would you say your interest in sports, if any, began? Well, I've been involved in sports my whole life. I come from a sports family. I grew up with two brothers. Um, my dad actually was a linebacker for the Houston Oilers back in 66. So we, uh, we ha- I come from quite a sports family. I played soccer. I was a swimmer. And I played basketball for my high school. Um, going from there, I quit sports for many years, but I moved to the great state of Minnesota where I fell in love with none other than hockey. Really? Yes. As I like to say, it's not a real sport unless it's played on ice. So, no. Uh, did you start playing or just become a fan of hockey? I wish I had played hockey, but, um, because you grew up in Northern California. I grew up in Northern California where there was, there was hockey actually. I played with my mm-hmm. brothers one year. We played at the Charles M. Schultz Ice Arena where he actually refereed wow. the games. What? Yeah. Charles, <laughs> Charles Schultz refereed my brother's um, hockey games. Yeah. Maybe that's what this is <laughs> <Yeah>. about. <laughs> Wait, hold up. <laughs> How old was Charles Schultz at that point? He was not that. He was not that old. I mean, this okay. is okay. This was in the late seventies, early eighties. Okay. So okay. you know, he was he was older. I remember him seeing him on the rink, and he mm-hmm. had white hair. Okay. You know, he was a tall, thin man with white hair and glasses, and fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. St. Paul, Minnesota's own Charles mm-hmm. Schultz. Say, speaking of Minnesota and St. Paul, I think it's time that Anne tells everyone what it is that she does in the world of sports. I am misadventure. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an insurance. Wait, uh-huh. what does that mean? <laughs> Who's Misadventure? Uh, Misadventure is my alter ego. She's amazing. She's actually how I got the job at Bethel. We can go into that a little later if you want. But um, yeah, uh, she is, uh, well, I'm an entertainer with the St. Saint Paul Saints. So if okay, anybody okay. has, if you guys have been to the St. Paul Saints, you've seen all those crazy people running around on the dugouts. Mm-hmm. And I am one of those people. So for, I don't know if we have many listeners beyond the Twin Cities, but if they don't know, what, what are the St. Saint Paul Saints? So the St. Saint Paul Saints are a AAA minor league team out of uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, and they actually won the national championship last year at our home field. It was absolutely amazing. It was so much fun. Is that American so, Association? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, yes. I always get that mixed up. Yeah. It's so a, it's an independent minor league baseball. Correct. And I didn't know if they were moving into... Uh, minor league, that's, I know that's being debated right now, but yeah. this is a minor league team in St. Paul. have a really beautiful stadium in Lower Town, downtown mm-hmm. St. Mm-hmm. Paul. Um, so, um, use the, say the term again, usher-tainer? Usher-tainer. Okay. That's right. So, talk about, well, first of all, let's get the character down. So, describe to us Misadventure. So, I am lots of red and gold lame. <laughs> a big, huge gold cape. Okay. Very much like Thor's. Excellent. Uh-huh. And uh, and a hat and goggles similar to Amelia Earhart. Oh. Uh, because I fly an invisible jet that is actually parked in center field for the whole game. Is this rooted in some Excellent. other mythology, or is this something that's come up just for the character? Uh, this is, no, this okay. is just my own. <laughs> so is, is this a character you invented, or something yes. you inherited from someone yep, else? Yep, no, okay. this is... This is something that I invented. It came off another um, character named Annie Ballerini, which was my first. I was parking cars over at Midway Stadium as a ballerina, and that was my first incarnation of an usher-tainer. And then from there, I proceeded on to okay. 
misadventure. So how long have you been working with the Saints in one capacity? Uh, eight years. So this will be my eighth season. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So when you, how, how did you come to work with the Saints? Uh, well, just for years and years being an actor, I'm an actor by trade, and I've worked for um, Mystery Cafe, several other companies in town, and have a. it's a pretty small group of people that I'm friends with here, mm-hmm. and one of my friends became the entertainment coordinator for the St. Paul Saints at Midway and said, hey, you want to come do this thing? Gotcha. And I went and tried it, and well, first of all, I just have to say, I fell in love with the, with the Saints. I, <laughs> I, I always said that a St. Paul Saints game would be a, a ball game played in heaven. Seriously, mm. it's so much fun because it's it's a ball game, but but it's not. There's no stress. There's no nobody's mad. Nobody's mm. yeah. You know. So it's, what, what's different? I mean, the people listening, if their experience of baseball is major leagues or like NCAA or something, what's different about the St. Paul Saints that creates that kind of atmosphere? Well, it's just it's it's a it's a lot of fun, and their 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 motto is fun is good. Uh, but you know, going to a twins game, I mean, God bless them, but it's, it's kind of slow going, you know, whereas at a, at a St. Paul Saints game, I mean, it is the new stadium is beautiful. A lot of us were kind of concerned when we moved from Midway because the Midway stadium was so great. Uh, but the new stadium is absolutely beautiful and there's stuff going on all the time. As soon as the inning is over, Boom, there's people on the field, they're playing games, there's big Tyrannosaurus Rexes fighting, you know, there's eyeballs running around the whole, you know, the whole field. I mean, there's all different kinds of games going on. It, it, yeah, it's funny you say, I, I, so we used to live like a, a walk from Midway Stadium. Um, and when my kids were really little, uh, I would take them there because it was cheaper than going to a Twins game. We could walk there, we could go home early if they got tired when they were really little. And it was funny because my daughter loved going and it was like she would be disappointed when the game started back up because, like, the in-between <laughs> stuff was really fun. And she, so she'd get excited about whatever was happening. And it's like, oh, now they're going to play baseball again? My son loved the baseball. My daughter loved the stuff in between. It was perfect. Yeah. But that's, yeah. That, that's my experience, too. So I've been to Saints games and Twins games. And uh, the Twins, like a lot of MLB teams, it really is a temple to baseball. There's a lot of things going on, but the, it's drawing you back to the game itself whereas uh, the saints games like it's, it's a spectacle it's a yeah. three-ring circus and there's um yes you can enjoy the game but there's also about five other things you could be enjoying during the process of well and it's interesting you both mentioned this is with your kids right yeah. so and I, that's my question i had and was um i mean is, are the kids your audience is the entire fan base your audience as you think about um you know inventing this character and as you perform are you doing it for the kids or are you doing it for everyone who's there? I'm doing it for everyone who's there. Okay. Um, and I, my, my thing that I love to do the most, I mean, it's fun too. So it, during an inning, we'll actually get up on the stadiums and dance, or uh, stadium, on top of the stadium. I fly to the top of the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> on the dugouts? Yes, on the dugouts. Thank you. And, um, and, you know, dance and t- whatever and do f- funny dances or whatever to keep people entertained. But ultimately, what I really love doing is just sitting down with people mm-hmm. and talking to them and hearing their story. That really cool. is – that is so – and at Midway Stadium, I mean, there was a family – I ended up talking to the dad for a really, really, really long time. Just – I his every word, I was just – and his daughter came up to me after the game and she said, I got to tell you, my dad's got really – severe Alzheimer's, late-stage Alzheimer's. Mm. And for you to stand there and talk to him, that meant the world to us, and it meant the world to him. Mm. She goes, don't ever stop doing what you're doing. Mm. And then she came to to, to um, 
the state the new stadium and she recognized me and she's like hey hi and she said hello again and i mean it was just because he had since passed and yeah. just st- little stuff like that where it's like okay yes i'm a 51 year old woman dressed in a superhero costume <laughs> running around a stadium <laughs> however there is more of a relational piece here that as a christian and as somebody who's out in the world uh you know I get to take that with me. So what are your instructions for your job? I have none. Okay. okay. Zero. That's what I was, I was wondering. So like, when you started, did you audition this character? Nope. Okay. Mm-mm. No, but he knew me. Okay. He, my friend knows me really well. He knows how I am with people. He knows what I'm capable of. He knows that I'm crazy and can just, you know, be loud and obnoxious, but also, <laughs> you know, also, you know, sit and talk to people yeah. and stuff like that. How so. many usher teeners are, how many other characters are there? There's a lot. Movie? There's a lot of us. There's, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 of us, maybe. Not all on the same night. We all, okay. and the nice thing is, too, is, you know, I have a family, so I can pick and choose my schedule and okay. stuff like that. So, how many games do you perform at? Uh, I try to do. I try to do at least two, three, four a homestand. Okay. okay. I, I don't do every night. There was a couple summers ago where I did every night, and that get that's a lot. But right. so, huh. yeah. So, what does a game day look like from your perspective? So I leave here, and I drive down to St. Paul, mm-hmm. and I wander around a little bit, get a soda, get something to eat, you know, and then I get dressed, and I get dressed, and I wait, and they introduce us. There's a big, you know, nobody's in the stadium yet, but they introduce us, and we all mm-hmm. goof, goof around, then we go back down, and we hang out a little longer, and and then once the game starts, we're out. And okay. every once in a while, I'll have to run a game or be part of a game, but I got fired from that kind of because I I would be too busy talking to people and wouldn't show up for my game. <laughs> so um so they just kinda they just let me do my thing. Yeah. So at the end of this so uh, for the class we teach, we're going to end with a trip to Target Field. And the idea is not just it'll be fun, but also we want them to research some of the different roles that go into at that level major league baseball franchise. And one thing that's always struck me is I go to baseball games is Part of me feels like this would be the best job ever. But for me, it would be because, oh, I get to go watch the Twins all the time. But then I realize uh, that's not what most people, they've got a job to do. They're, right. they're aware of the action, but they're not, and even like beat writers, you know, in a sense, they're aware of it, but they're not fans in the same sense. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to ask is, A, do you like baseball? And B, do you get to be a fan at the same time you're doing your job that you're being paid for? Yes and yes. Okay. Yeah, Absolutely. I love baseball and especially the Saints because it feels like small town ball to me, mm. um, which is really which is really fun and um, and yeah I love watching the games with the fans, you know especially last year when we started I mean we were not doing well the first half of the season and all of a sudden we kicked in I say it's because of John Silviano he's our first baseman who's my favorite player on the team he came in and uh, you know I mean it's the entire team but really they stuff changed and. Mm. Um, and we won, when we won the championship, it was it was absolutely incredible. And then when they told me that I get a championship ring, I was well, oh, come on! <laughs> it's so fascinating. You call it small town baseball, right? Yeah. Like St. Paul is not a huge city, but it's a good sized American city. And the way you talk about it reminds me of going to rookie league, minor league ball with my dad in southwestern Virginia in Pulaski, where the Yankees have their farm team. And there are like 10,000 people in the town. The field seats maybe 1,200 folks. But there's definitely, 
they're kind of regulars who come. They sit in the same place. They know, like, they have their vendors. They, mm-hmm. they yep. have ushers. And there's definitely a sense of community. And they also know the players because, like, the players uh, live with them, with families. They're all, like, 18 and 19-year-olds. And to have you describe that in the middle of Lower Town, St. Paul, is, is really pretty remarkable. Because that, much as I love the Twins Major League Base, that's not what the Twins feel like. Maybe if no. I had season tickets, it would feel a little bit more like that. But that seems like a pretty distinctive thing in professional sports in the 21st century to describe that. Yeah, you 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 nailed it. I mean, that's exactly the way I feel when I watch it. Um, when Chris first mentioned you, or actually Chris and Sam both mentioned you, Anne, and I thought, oh, we're going to talk about mascots. And I just realized we have not used the word mascot yet. And so I don't even know if that's appropriate. Do you think of yourself like a mascot? Are you doing something different than a mascot would do? Is it part of the same kind of category? We have a mascot. Okay. Our mascot is Madonna. She's a huge pink pig. You can't miss her. She's great. <laughs> yep. She's great. Um, so, no, I'm not a mascot. Okay. I am an usher-tainer. Okay. And there's there's nobody like us. That's one thing that you got to know is there's nobody in the country or Canada that is that does what we do. There's mm-hmm. one other team where, like, the front office staff comes out and they do a dance every game or something like that. But there is no... There's nobody who has a staff of usher-tainers who are at every game like we are. All right. Because I was going to ask you if you know, like, the other mascots in town. Like, do you hang out with T.C. Bear in the <laughs> I've met them all. T.C. Bear. I love, Chris, I love the idea that there's, like, some kind of, like, speakeasy where all the mascots. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's like their actor's bar. Is there, yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Mascot usher-tainer place. You <laughs> so, so I feel like I've already asked you this question, but I'm going to ask it again. Like, do you have other responsibilities during the game other than to, like, do which like okay because I think about the phrase usher tainer mm-hmm. and it's I get the entertainer part, but when I think about an usher doing something like hey, they have they have a particular mm-hmm. set of responsibilities. Do you have other responsibilities besides doing what you're describing to us? No. Okay. Wow. Because no, I think of ushers at Twins games, I'm a little bit scared. Yeah, they're an authority <laughs> like, figure. Right? They're like <laughs> they don't believe that you have a ticket for that seat, You'd and prove. they're nice like 72 year old guys in a jacket, but I don't want to cross them. <laughs> And I feel like I could probably, I would not be afraid of you. My kids would think you're fantastic. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Huh. It's pretty fun. So you trained as an actor, and like, um, I think I know the answer to that. How fulfilling is this as a professionally trained actor to be an usher tainer at a minor league baseball game? Do you feel like um, the reasons you got into acting in the first place, are you're, you're getting to do those things in minor league baseball? It's really the only reason I still act because I really, to be honest with you, I, I don't care much for acting anymore. It's I feel driven in other directions, um, which is great, and I'm honoring that, you know, mm-hmm. but but I still love that piece, and I'm good at it. I've been doing it for a long, long time, you know, so I'm comfortable on top of a dugout, getting a crowd going. I'm also comfortable sitting down and talking to people, so it fulfills that creative piece in me that yeah. that is a part of who I am. But I also don't want to, I really don't want to be in rehearsals seven nights a week and away from my family that much. So it's, it's the perfect, it's a perfect fit for me. And, and I'm outside in the summer. I mean, I would never go to that many ball games, you know, in the summer. I just wouldn't. (laughs) And so it's just a delight. So I have to ask, you mentioned that this is, this led you to your job at Bethel here. Mm -hmm. How did that work out? So back when I was Annie Ballerini, I met this little girl. Her name was Allie, and Mm -hmm. she fell in love with me. And so I got to know her mom and her dad, or her mom and her her stepdad, her mom's boyfriend at the time. They're Mm -hmm. now married. But um, anyway, uh, and her name was Amy. 
And I didn't really know her name at the time, but mm-hmm. I knew Allie. So Allie would always follow me around. And um, well, I came, ended up coming to Bethel uh, to go to school in the CAPS-GS program. Graduated from there and then tried for almost a year to get a job. Had put in like five applications. None of them were even answered. And finally, I, I put an application for an admin to the business office and got a call to go in and went in for the interview. And and we were going through the motions of the interview or whatever. And she said, okay, well, I will talk to Amy Blas, the controller. And I was like, oh, wait, I know her. And she's like, really? And I'm like, yes, I know her. Um yeah, just tell her that I was here, okay? And then I started to walk out. Now, if any of you know, mm-hmm. remember Emily Heller, who w- used to work in HR. She's a very quiet, you know, sort of a quiet mm-hmm. person. Um, I ran out, and I ran back in, and I said, just tell her Miss Adventure was here. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a call five minutes later for a second interview. Uh, and wow, that was it. I got hired, like, you. the next day. So, yeah. Love it. Well, we're so glad that worked yeah. out because it meant that this could work out because this really was a delight to talk to Anne and get a, lot, Chris. Like a really unique insight into uh, one kind of job in sports. Yeah. Okay. We'll be right back to wrap up this episode of the 252. Get in touch with the show by emailing us at channel3900 at gmail.com. Surprise! We're running out of time on this episode of the 252. Let's go straight to 3 to see Chris Moore. Kick us off. Maybe it's just because I just spoke in class about the rise and decline of boxing in the United States, but you should check out Wilder versus Fury 2 on February 22nd. Yes, I said that right. Wilder versus Fury. Does that not sound like a heavyweight match? This is an elite heavyweight match. Deontay Wilder is the reigning WBC champ and is undefeated. Tyson Fury is the former holder of multiple belts and is also undefeated. Hmm. Both men have one draw on their record, which is to each other when they last met in December of 2018. Sam? I'm keeping this one close to home because Minnesotans love the local angle. You should watch the February 21st girls' high school basketball game between Hopkins, 24-0, and Minnetonka, 16-9. Why? Because Hopkins is led by senior Paige Bukers, who was featured recently on the cover of Slam Magazine as, quote, the most electrifying high school player in the world. This is her last game before the playoffs begin. What's next for Bukers? Well, the 5'10 point guard who's averaging 21.4 points a game, 9.2 assists, 5.1 rebounds, and a jaw-dropping 5.5 steals per game is taking her talents to Stores, Connecticut. Sorry, Gophers. Speaking of local angles, the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference is wrapping up its winter season with women's basketball playoffs starting on February 25th. Heading into tonight's showdown with Augsburg, Robert Student Center, everyone. Uh, first place, Bethel has lost only one game in 2019-20. One way or another, the Royals will host a semifinal on the 27th with the conference title decided that Saturday. Bethel forward Tate Anderson is averaging 21 points per game on 65% shooting from the floor, both of which would set school records. I'm sure there are other records at stake here. But, yeah, I think they have two regular season games left, but tonight against Augsburg, which has only two losses, and then I think one more game before the playoffs start. So show up to chair on the Royals. Let's do it. All right. Chris, why don't you wrap us up? On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, you can always get a hold of us at um, uh, um, channel3900. There we go. At gmail.com. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. 
Um, and uh, we'll be at the Robertson Center tonight checking out those Royals. Um, go Royals! <laughs>